This week, we're wrapping up our church word series. If you're in the chat this morning, go ahead and comment the British flag emoji to let Pastor Tom know how much we appreciate him. All right, come on, church. Let's welcome Pastor Tom. Good morning, everybody. And uh, I hope to see a ton of British flags in the comments online. Um, But as we mentioned, uh, this is week six of the six-week series that we've done uh, called Church Words. And I'll let you know, I'm very happy with how it's gone. Um, I've had some really kind feedback. Uh, People have let me know that it's been helpful, uh, hopefully encouraging to you. So uh, don't be too surprised if sometime in the future we reprise the idea and maybe we'll do like a three-week mini-series with three different words sometime in the future. But I'm real happy with how it's gone. And the idea of the series has been that uh, there are words that are said in and around church um, or in conversations related to things of the Bible or things of the kingdom or church or eternity or God or something faith-based. And there are words that you wouldn't typically use them uh, in any other conversation you would have day to day. So we've looked into specific words um, to go through that. And uh, so last week, the word was saved. And we came up with the definition we came up with was that being rescued from the power and consequence of sin and included in an eternal loving relationship with God. To be saved is to being rescued from the power and consequence of sin and included in an eternal loving relationship with God. And today, our word is repent. And so I uh, had a conversation uh, not long ago uh, around the dinner table and let my uh, family know, you know, oh yeah, this week was going to be the word repent. And my father-in-law reminded me of a story about Elijah. He's nine now. He's my oldest son. And when we were um, doing a sound check at a last church, Elijah, who was maybe two or three at the time, he was around. And so I'm on stage, Megan was on stage, and we're doing all the mic checks and everything. And Elijah's there. So I just give him the mic and say, hey, buddy, you want to say anything? He grabbed that mic and just started stomping around the stage, repent, repent, repent. <laughs> and he didn't get that from me. So I would look in Megan's direction, but let's move on before I get in trouble. But if I'm being honest, I would say that out of the six words that we've looked at in this series, I would say this is the most churchy church word that we're going to look at. And so the, church, the word repent, I don't know about you, but for me, it certainly reminds me of angry preachers, preachers that want to start pointing fingers and start accusing people and start making wild accusations and wild judgments. There's big, you know, repent, repent. It just seems like it's fueled with anger. And I wouldn't be surprised that if you invited someone to church this week and said, oh, you should definitely come check out my church, the preacher's going to be talking about repent. I would expect people to give that a hard pass. I would expect that this is not a Sunday that people would want to be in church. But as I was talking um, with Nick before service, and he kind of like, okay, so what's like the big thing for today? And I said, honestly, if we can get across and we can communicate and we can show the church that the idea of repentance is a positive and not a negative, we did what we need to do today. And I truly do believe that, that the, the idea of repentance, the biblical idea of repentance and what it's rooted in, not the distorted view that angry, judgmental, crazy people have come up with, but this honest to goodness, biblical idea of what repentance is, it is a positive and not a negative. It is something we should run towards and not something we should run from. And if you look at um, how the word repent is understood commonly today, it generally means, you know, being sorry. The word repent generally has come to mean that, you know, we're going to start behaving better or we're going to stop doing something bad or we're going to do a 180 degree turn. But the biblical message of repentance is much deeper and much more significant than just a simple, I'm sorry. 
If you were to look through the Old Testament, we see repentance happening all the time. It's normally described as a turning to God or seeking God or returning to God. And we see this repentance happening both socially uh, or even nationally, there being a widespread repentance as well as it happening for individuals. And in the Old Testament, it's a big dramatic call to abandon sin and return to faithfulness. And the New Testament, which uh, was written in Greek, the word repent, which you see in the New Testament, uh, is the word metanoia. And the word metanoia, uh, it was an everyday word that was used um, in all manner of subjects and conversations. And it simply means a change of mind. And I got in touch with my dad this week, and uh, my dad gave me some helpful insight. And he let me know that uh, the word metanoia, the word repent that we have today, was not exclusively spiritual or religious at all. It just simply meant to change your mind. As in, would you like the beef or the chicken? Oh, let's go with the chicken. Oh, actually, I'm going to repent and have the beef. It's, I used to like this, but I've repented, and now I like something else. It wasn't loaded with a deeply spiritual or a deeply significant or a deeply religious meaning like we would know it today. But Jesus and the New Testament authors, they took the Old Testament themes of turning to God, returning to Him, abandoning sin, returning to faithfulness, coming back to God, seeking Him again. They took those themes and metanoia, that word repent, is essentially the hanger they put that code on. And said metanoia, this idea of changing your mind, changing your perspective, that's gonna, this word sums up, this is the word we're going to use, and we're going to load that word, we're going to pack that word with meaning, and all we see from the Old Testament, we're going to place on that word metanoia, so when we see repent, it's going to come with a whole lot of history, and it's going to have a whole lot of meaning attached to it, even though the Greek culture was using that word casually every day about easy things, like easy come, easy go things. And Jesus and the New Testament writers, they used the word metanoia to describe a deep transformation. And with my children, um, I have these three little angels that live with me. Every now and again, they forget they're angels. And what I found myself starting to say is, I don't want to hear sorry, I want to see sorry. Talk is cheap, but I want to see a transformation. And the word metanoia, that is, the way that it is used, it speaks to a deeper transformation. And in human relationships, there are different depths of apology or transformation. So we can say sorry, but don't mean it. We can say sorry, but only because we got caught. We can say sorry and promise to never, ever do it ever again. We can really be sorry and feel bad about it. We can wish we'd never done it and never want to do it again. And we can decide to do whatever we need to do to never do that thing ever again. But then there's a deeper transformation. There is a deeper change, there is a deeper transformation that can happen that God is calling us to when He calls us to repentance. Now, the literal Greek, the word metanoia, the simple translation we can put on it is to change one's mind or purpose in response to something. To change one's mind or purpose in response to something. But with all the examples of the Old Testament and the whole context of the New Testament, there's a somewhat different definition or a deeper definition for how the biblical authors use the word. And this is the definition we're going to run with today with all the way that the New Testament authors and all the way that Jesus loaded this word is to repent in context is to deeply and completely change one's heart, mind, and soul and their entire life's priorities and purpose in response to Jesus' love and grace. 
to deeply and completely change one's heart, mind, and soul and their entire life's priorities and purpose in response to Jesus' love and grace. And John the Baptist, who was preaching and ministering before Jesus began uh, preaching and uh, active in ministry, he was preaching repentance. And then when Jesus began his ministry, we continue him uh, continuing the same idea. So we're going to come to a verse in just a moment. At this point in the life of Jesus, he's recently been baptized. He's gone off to the desert and has been tempted by the devil for 40 days. And he begins ministry. Matthew 4, 17. This is right from the get-go. This is right at the starting gun. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, if you read that verse, and what you're used to hearing and what's been projected on this is anger and bitterness and religious spirit behind it, this is how that passage can read. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins, you rotten, wicked sinner, and turn to God, who maybe will forgive you if you're really, really sorry, for the kingdom of heaven is near for those people who have repented properly. If you, say, if you hear the word repent with frustration and anger attached to it, that is how that verse can sound to us. Repent of your sins, you dirty, rotten skinner, uh, sinner, and turn to God who maybe will forgive you. The kingdom of God is here for people that have repented properly. But seeing it through the lens of grace, seeing it through the love of Jesus that he has shown to humanity, it sounds a little more like this. Jesus began to preach deeply and completely change your heart, mind, and soul about sin and how it affects those around you. For the kingdom of heaven is near. So rethink your entire life's priorities in response to my love and grace towards you. Sounds so different when we view this through the lens of grace, when we, re uh, we read this and we hear this, knowing that it is a, a sentiment that is packed with the love of God and is called to repentance, it is a deep transformation. Unfortunately, too often we're satisfied with say sorry and promise you'll never do it again and call that repentance. But that really is a dumbed-down version of the true repentance that the Bible teaches. But if your goal is to get behavior change, it's no surprise that people resort to angry, judgmental preaching. If you're satisfied with surface change and a half-hearted apology because your goal is everyone behaving themselves, anger, guilt, and shame is the easiest way to do it. But if we read repentance, remembering all the love and all the grace that God is showing us, that this is a deep transformation that God is inviting us to, it starts to read differently than the angry people would suggest. We rattle through a few verses that talk about repentance, and hopefully we can hear these with the, the idea that this is loaded with the love and grace of God has for us. From then on, Jesus began to repeat, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And this is Peter in the book of Acts. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. This is Paul talking. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. Book of Romans, his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. From Corinthians, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. Think differently about the things in your life that are distancing you from God and turn to him. 
the one who is waiting with arms wide open because there is a kingdom he wants you to be a part of. And to be a part of it, your heart and mind and soul needs to change, needs to transform. He needs to wipe our sins away. So embrace the kindness and love of God. Let his love and grace reshape our attitude towards every aspect of life so you can enjoy being included in a kingdom where Jesus is king and he alone is Lord of all. Repent. The call to repentance should bring hope, not guilt and shame. The call to repentance is that the mess that you're in right now doesn't have to stay that way. The call to repentance is that those things that have distanced you from God don't have to stay evident in your life, robbing you of the relationship. A call to repentance should bring hope because your eternity right now is in the balance. Your eternity is taking you to a place you do not want to be. We talked about this last week. But a call to repentance means that you can become a part of the eternal kingdom of God, even though you desperately don't deserve it. God has made a way. The call to repentance should bring hope, not guilt and shame. It's bad enough that people have twisted repentance to be filled with guilt, shame, and condemnation, but especially when it was always said and meant to be a message of hope. And in this series, we talked about being discipled. We talked about grace, sin, holiness, and saved in this series. And all of these words are a message of unique hope. Repentance, it doesn't matter what you're stuck in right now, whether it's an addiction, a habit, a mindset, a destructive behavior, the promise of repentance And embracing a new start is a message of enormous hope. Hopefully, every time you hear repent, you hear the word hope, not guilt and shame. Hope that God can bring a deep transformation. I was reading um, something by a a church leader who recently was um, being very critical of emotional manipulation in churches. And this upset him so much the way that churches would um, try and bring fear to people in church, to try and manipulate people into behaving themselves and uh, all the different things that were, you know, you could do with emotional manipulation, which nefarious people may do. And so in response to that, they completely removed anything very deliberately that could spur emotions within people in the congregation. Like we're going to have a very unemotive... um, service, our ministry is not going to be emotionally charged. At the very basic level, the problem with that is that the cross is probably the most emotional moment in human history. And even today, as we were in worship together, if you were to sort of just look just at the few people that are around you, you would have seen a full array of human emotion. You would have seen somebody crying. Who knows why? That's their story. But we will have seen people that are beaming with joy There would have been people that are bringing their fears and frustrations to God sat in the pews around you. There will be others that are just quietly reflecting on God's goodness. But when Jesus says that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, we we could distinct heart, mind, and soul, and we could talk about those separately, but collectively, I think it's safe to say that Jesus is really saying that everything on the inside Heart, mind, and soul, that makes up everything that is on the inside of you. That's your character. That's who you are. That's what's happening on the inside of you. It's this attitude, this emotions, this is intellect, this is logic. This is everything on the inside of you. The most important thing is that everything on the inside of you puts God first. That takes a deep work of the Lord God Almighty working in the hearts of his people. 
is to transform us so that our hearts, minds, and soul are turned towards him. And I think that um, with our emotions, it's easy to see that they need to come in line. Easy to see how our attitudes and the way we think about things. But I also think that logic also plays a part in this. I was reading a, a book maybe a month or so ago on apologetics, and apologetics is really a, a field of Christian study um, where you try to discuss um, and face on objections to the faith. So if someone brings an objection to the faith, well, hey, how is that possible in the Bible? The field of apologetics really is sort of giving the idea of this is a response to that. And so let me read this quote to you from this book. It's by a guy called Alistair McGrath. He's talking about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, possibly the greatest Christian apologist, someone that can engage with doubt and objections to the faith of the 20th century, describes the capacity the Christian faith has to make sense of things with characteristic eloquence and concision. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Lewis' point is fundamental to Christian apologetics. Christianity makes sense in itself and has the ability to make sense of everything else as well. With all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, our emotions coming in line, our logic coming in mind, the call to repentance changes how we understand and respond to life. To repent means we start to think with Christian values. It means we start to think with kingdom principles, that our emotions line up with the heart of God, inviting the Holy Spirit to deeply transform our heart, mind, and soul. Everything changes because the call to repentance changes how we understand and respond to life. I have a friend of mine who was pastoring in Boston for a number of years, and on his social media, on his Instagram, there were pictures of baptism service that was happening um, at his church, and it looked awesome. So I was on the phone with him, and I said, hey, I see you guys have baptisms recently. It looked great. And he was like, oh, bro, you don't even know. I was like, okay, well, what, you know, what happened? Fill me in. He said, dude, we baptized a guy who just got out of prison. He spent 10 years inside for shooting somebody. I was like, no way, man, that's crazy. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. The guy that baptized him was the guy he shot. If I'm lying, I'm dying. This is a true story. They lead a small group together. They're buddies. I don't know the rest of the story. But I know that for that kind of repentance, that kind of deep transformation, that kind of willingness to change on both parties, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's a heart, mind, and soul being completely transformed to line up with kingdom values. That's a heart, mind, and soul that has had God get involved and do some wild transformation. That is something that does not come about because someone says, sorry, I'm going to start behaving myself. This is somebody that says, Lord, I'm ready for a deep transformation that is going to happen in my heart, mind, and soul so I can become the person you have created me to be. And I would say in church that seeing deep transformation happening in people is one of the biggest things that causes joy. Seeing people truly repent is one of the greatest sources of joy in ministry that angry, bitter people become loving and compassionate seeing prideful people find humility, the people that are driven by fear finding peace, old hurts being addressed and worked through, 
dysfunction, finding order and peace. This is deeply joyful moments in church life. But in all of this, a question that I thought was reasonable is, what causes repentance? How does somebody get to a point where they're ready for this deep kind of change? What causes a desire within us for a deep transformation? And I thought it'd be helpful to look at a number of biblical examples, and I was able to come up with six, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list. If you look through the Bible, there'll be a lot more than these six, but these six stood out to me as especially helpful as we dig into these. So what causes repentance? The first one is the supernatural. We're going to look at an example from Paul, who went on to become an apostle. So Paul, at the time, he was known by his Jewish name, Saul. He would later go on to be known by his Roman name, Paul. He's on his way to kill Christians, um, very literally. He was on his way to Damascus to go and murder Christians. It had been sanctioned and authorized by the authorities, and he was on his way to go do some killing. But he had a supernatural encounter with Jesus. Acts 9, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. This is a man who's on his way to go murder people. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The man stood with Saul, stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there for three, uh, blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Paul had an undeniable supernatural encounter. And for many of us, this is the story of how we began following Jesus. We had a supernatural encounter with him. Some kind of encounter. There, I'm guessing there are people that are here today that um, you would say that you came into a worship service and you experienced the presence of God in an indescribable way that you never thought you were ever going to encounter God. And that just caused you to get to a point where you wanted to change everything. You were ready to begin repentance. The cause was an encounter with the supernatural. Maybe someone witnessed a miracle and that caused them to rethink everything. But an encounter with the supernatural like Paul had. Another example is we see, uh, let's say, observation. I'm going to look at Nicodemus for this. We talked about Nicodemus quite a lot last week. He was a well-known and respected Jewish teacher. And he came to Jesus with questions. And Nicodemus, he shows up three times in John's gospel. The first is in chapter 3. We were hanging out here a little bit last week. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus goes on to explain being born again, but Nicodemus has more questions. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. So the first time we see Nicodemus, he, uh, uh, he leaves the conversation still having questions. And the second time we see Nicodemus, he's with his friends, the religious leaders and fellow Pharisees, and they're debating about arresting Jesus. Fast forward to John 7. Is there a single one of us, rulers or Pharisees, who believe in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is upon them. Then Nicodemus speaks up. Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. It is, uh, is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing, he asked. So hold on. We shouldn't be hasty about this. There was something from that initial conversation with Jesus in John 3 that had left him curious. He wasn't ready to follow Jesus. 
He wasn't ready to say, you know what, forget this. I'm leaving this pharisaical life. I'm done with this. I'm going to follow Jesus. I understand that he is Lord. He wasn't ready to do that. But he also wasn't ready to jump on the bandwagon with the other religious leaders. The last time we see Nicodemus was immediately after Jesus died. This is before the resurrection in John 19. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been the secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. So now, he's ready, not only to follow Jesus, but to disgrace himself by taking Jesus off the cross. We see a progression, possibly over a period of years. I'm turning up, I'm asking my questions. I leave curious. When the topic of Jesus comes up again, I'm kind of on the fence about this whole thing. The last time we see him, he's receiving his Lord off the cross, completely distancing himself from the other Pharisees and other religious leaders. This progression taking place over a period of years. Another way we see repentance coming about is through tragedy. And we look at Jonah for this example. Jonah is a prophet in the Old Testament who's called by God to go to Nineveh to preach, and he refuses, and he gets in a boat that goes the exact other way. While he's in the boat, there's a storm, and through conversation, the sailors decide to throw him overboard. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. In the middle of tragedy, being thrown overboard, stuck inside a fish, with no hope, no sign of this ending, Jonah's heart changes. Then Jonah prays to God. I bet there are people that are here today, and your relationship with God started in the midst of tragedy. In the midst of feeling life was the worst of the worst, you're able to see that God is still present and working even in the middle of life's toughest seasons. That somehow, tragedy has a way of bringing us to a point where we're ready to ask God to change our hearts and do a deep transformation work. Next example is Esther. It's one of our conversation. And there was a complicated plot to kill the Jewish people and the godly man Mordecai. He has a relative who's become a queen and she may have, be able to have influence with the king. And through conversation, he asked her to think differently about the opportunity that she has, Esther 4. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. My maid and I will do the same and then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. And if you know the story, you know that this change of heart saved the Jewish people. And it came through a back and forth conversation. Who knows what those questions people are asking you will lead to. 
those conversations about things of faith, those people that are asking you about your story of a life following God, who knows, the conversations you've had with coworkers or family or neighbors, who knows what those conversations can lead to. Example from Esther is it led to a point where her heart was ready to change about what she was gonna do to try and help her people. Next example is regret. We look at an instant from the life of Peter. Jesus had told Peter that he would deny him three times and after Jesus was arrested and the pressure was on, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. And after the crucifixion, Peter is still carrying the guilt, but Jesus is committed to restoration. And after the resurrection, Jesus met with some of the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. We see this in John 21. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Accept the important leadership role I have for you. Feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's no coincidence that Peter denied Jesus three times. And three times Jesus has him say, I love you back to him. Peter was hurt that Jesus had asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And after deep regret of denying Jesus and failing in his post, Jesus causes a deep change in Peter's heart. And in the following weeks, we see him transform from a man ashamed to a bold and confident church leader that's ready to stand up and help 3,000 people get saved. Because Jesus caused repentance in the midst of regret. The last one I want to hit on is King David. Repentance comes by confrontation. King David is the greatest king Israel would ever have. And still, he had an affair with a married woman, and then he had a complicated plot put together where he had the woman's husband killed. And God sent a prophet to confront David the king. 2 Samuel 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had brought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And that parable from Nathan to help David get to the point of understanding about the severity of what he'd done. That he had devastated people's lives. That he had done something truly horrific. And David's response is deep repentance. Deep repentance. So whether it's a supernatural moment, supernatural encounter, that we see similar to Paul on the road to Damascus, or whether it's through observation, like we see from Nicodemus, you've been able to watch, see God at work, see him moving here, see him evident here, waiting, listening, observing, and having our, hand, uh, having our heart changed through that, whether it's through tragedy like Jonah with no hope, we've been able to see God in the middle of it. 
Maybe it's conversation like Queen Esther. Sharing experiences, asking questions, bringing perspectives, hearing what people have to say, hearing people's story of a life following God. Or maybe regret. In the middle of our mess, finding out that God is there, ready to restore the broken relationship. Or maybe it's through confrontation. And I don't mean someone with an opinion, but someone that cares enough about you to deliver a tough truth. And no matter how we get to this point of repentance and whatever cause brings us to that point, God's kindness is in all of it. It's his kindness that is intended to turn you from your sin. The cause of repentance, it it can bring a challenge. And that cause, it, it might look different. It might be a conversation, it might be an observation, or it might be a regret. Whatever it is, it brings us to that point where we're ready. And if you're at that point, you may be here and maybe wondering like, okay, I know that there's some things that need to change. What do I do now? Best thing I could say is to ask yourself a series of questions. The first thing is, is what does the Bible say about it? Now this is the t-shirt answer, this is the right answer. This is the bumper sticker answer. And if you're a committed Christian, perhaps because the Bible says is enough for you, that's all you need. Maybe if you're not a believer, if you're not following Jesus, the idea of like, well, because the Bible says so, doesn't carry much weight with you. And I think it's perfectly fair and reasonable to ask, why does the Bible say that? And I would even encourage my fellow Christians to start asking and considering, why is the Bible steering me away from that? Why does the Bible condemn that? Why does the Bible say that is wrong? Why does the Bible talk about that being sin? Because if we start digging into why, it strengthens us when we're faced with temptation. Why is God opposed to this? Why is God telling me to get away from this, to put distance between me and that thing? Once we get that why, it's easier to face temptation. Because I said so should be enough. But God, in his grace and his kindness, gives us some why to give us some depth as we fight that temptation. Next question, what's the Holy Spirit saying? James 4, 17, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. That might be my least favorite verse in the whole Bible because it calls out a whole lot of stuff. That's a spiritual conviction, something that needs to change. What's the Holy Spirit bringing that conviction for? What's the Holy Spirit prompting you about? The third question is what happens next? What happens next? If I do blank, what happens next? Feels good in the moment, but what happens next? Everyone else is doing it. What happens next? It's amazing that the world will scream at you and scream at me we should just live a little. That we should live in the moment. That we should live every day like it's our last. And there's one problem with that. I don't want today to be my last day. So I don't want to live like every day is my last. I want to live like what I'm doing today is actually setting me up to have a good tomorrow. So. So ask yourself. What happens next? Next thing, how does this affect others? How does this affect family? 
people around you? How does this affect total strangers? How does this affect other people that God loves dearly? How does this affect others? Fifth question, does this take God's place in my life? We talked last week about choosing God over anything else and you'll have no shortage of opportunity to choose the Father, to choose God over anything else. But maybe this thing, whatever it is, fill in your blank, has become so important to you that it has started to take God's place. I honestly believe if we were to ask questions or questions like this about something that we feel a prompting to repent from, to move away from, I believe that if we start to ask these questions that we'll start to gain a confidence that the Bible is revealing something to be helpful to us. We'll be, you know, accepting that this is truly a challenge from the Holy Spirit. We'll be mindful of the consequences of what we're dealing with and how this affects people. How this affects people that God loves desperately. And we'll have a deep resolution that Jesus alone should be the Lord and King. And if that's taken that place, it has no good business in my life. And then you've started repenting. And the promise of God is that He is committed to work this through with you so you can find freedom and rest. Maybe a next step for you is is asking someone for help, reaching out, getting help somewhere. Maybe it's sharing your story with somebody or asking for forgiveness from someone. Perhaps finding someone who's won the same fight that you're facing. And friends, never stop praying for God to transform your heart, mind, and soul. Because repentance is not just about saying sorry and trying your best to not do it again. To repent is to deeply and completely change one's heart, mind, and soul and their entire life's priorities and purpose in response to Jesus' love and grace. And the call to repentance should bring hope, not guilt and shame. And the call to repentance changes how we understand and respond to life. Come on, everybody, let's welcome back Megan and Nick.